0: God. We're going to dig in this morning into uh, uh, chapter 3 of Genesis is where we're going to start. And and like we've been doing, we're kind of going to move a little bit around um, this morning. And so let's pick up where we left off last week. We left off around um, in Genesis 3 and in Romans 3. Let's pick up in Genesis 3. This morning, and as you turn there, I'm gonna try and do a little recap of where we've been for those of you who might not have been here, or for those of you who have been here but you were asleep and not paying attention, and you don't have to confess that. We know who you are, but nevertheless, anyway, as we are in this series called Brand New The Story and the Nature of Our Salvation, in this series, we are looking at some of the major themes that scripture uses to tell the story of the God gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've broken these themes into two popular groups as they are articulated in the explicit gospel by Matt Chandler and Jared Wilson. And and those two groups are the gospel on the ground and the gospel in the air. The gospel on the ground is more of what God is doing at an individual level in our salvation. And the gospel in the air is more what God is doing cosmically through the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, both have been addressed in the past by theologians of all shades and all stripes and colors, and and both of them are very important, which is why we're taking several weeks to address both gospel on the ground, gospel in the air. Right now, we're looking at the gospel on the ground and the themes associated with the gospel on the ground. And those themes are God, man, Christ, response. We've covered God and man for the first two weeks of this series. And in that covering, our aim was to help you clearly see the the very real and and the very obvious and the very enormous gap that exists between us and God. And so we spent time talking about God in week one, and we spent time talking about man in week two, God being holy and and God being righteous and God being other and, and God possessing all power and God possessing all knowledge. Man, on the other hand, although we are created in God's image and created in God's likeness, and although we are given a mandate to rule and reign by God, we fail devastatingly in the Garden of Eden. We chose to rule ourselves rather than be ruled by God and taking the one thing that God outlawed. And in doing so, Adam and Eve announced to God that we will not sin to submit Or we will will sin, rather, by not submitting to your authority. We will establish our own authority. And through that sin, sin and death entered into the world. And the judgment of God was declared and man was banished from the garden. This is the state of the world. The Bible says, like we read last week in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness supports the truth. This is the state of the world. So to sum it up, we have this perfect and holy creator that created us and gave us everything and called us to worship him exclusively. And instead of doing that, Instead of giving him what he was due, we have taken our worship and turned it back on us, earning God's judgment and earning God's eternal wrath, which is manifested through the reality that we call hell. And so that's what we've earned, and that's the chasm that exists between us and God. And you can go back the last two weeks to cover um, all of that that we've covered Um, in those two themes of God and man. We've committed the crime of holy betrayal against the creator of the universe, and thus we are without excuse. We are deserving of divine justice. And our sermon series, and more importantly, our lives and our eternal destiny, would be unbelievably tragic if it ended there. But thanks be to God, that's not where it ends. In fact, the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 forward is a story of redemption. It is a story about man being rescued from judgment and man being redeemed from the shame and the penalty of their disobedience. The rest of the Bible is a story of how the curse of death is being reversed and removed through a particular plan that God had. And that's what I want to discuss this morning. I want to discuss this particular plan. I want to discuss what steps has God taken to remove this curse. I want to discuss why did he have to take those steps. And I want to discuss what do those steps teach us about God. And this leads me to my first point, which is the plan of rescue, which is what we're going to call it this morning. The plan of rescue is a purposeful plan. It's a definitive plan. It has an aim. It, it, was, it was intended. It was intentional. It wasn't, it wasn't just spur a moment. God didn't cook up something um, out of shock and surprise. Now what's amazing, always amazing about God's story of redemption for mankind is how quickly God declares it. He declares it in Genesis 3, starting at verse 14, a passage that we've read before. This passage picks up right after Adam and Eve had turned away from God, inviting sin into the world, and it captures God pronouncing his judgment on them for doing so. Genesis 14 through 15, he is covering or he is dealing with the serpent in particular. And he says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curse to you above all livestock and above all beasts on the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right there, right there, in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment for Adam and Eve sinning in the garden and disobeying God and choosing their own way rather than his way, in the midst of this pronouncement of judgment on the serpent, we Find hope for Adam and hope for Eve and hope for their offspring. Eve's offspring will eventually crush the serpent, God says. But as he is doing so, the serpent will hurt him. And, and, and where does this bruising of the heel from the offspring or, 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 or to the offspring actually happen? It actually happens at the cross of Calvary. At the cross, the serpent is crushed. But at the cross, the serpent bruises the heel of the one who is crushing him. Now, I won't spend time, a whole lot of time on that text this morning. But I wanted to show you how even in the midst of judgment for our sin, it appears that God is saying from the very beginning of that sin entering into the world, I have a plan. And this is the plan that we hear about over and over and over again throughout Scripture. We hear echoes of that plan in Abraham. As God establishes his promises with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he calls Abraham out and he tells him to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you, make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then he says this in, in verse 3 of chapter 12. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Because from Abraham's offspring springs Christ. And through Christ, all the families of the world are blessed. We hear echoes of this rescue plan in Moses, as God establishes his promises with him. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, we hear God saying this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses talking, like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. In verse 18, he says, I will raise him up for them a prophet, Or I'm sorry, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the promise, this plan of redemption, this plan of rescue, we see it in the garden, we see it in, uh, in Abraham, we see it, in Moses and we even hear echoes of this of this promise in God's words to King David as he describes the day where one from David's lineage is 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 going to be raised to reign over an everlasting kingdom. 2nd 2 Samuel chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so in these promises, we see evidence that it's it's almost dual-purposed dual in the sense that he's talking about a son, but then he's talking about a son to come. He's talking about offspring, and then, but he's talking about offspring to come. And what the New Testament writers uh, catch on to, and latch on to is that even though though the Old Testament folks may have been thinking about one person, the New Testament says, no, 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 no. He was pointing to Jesus. He was pointing to Christ all along. He was showing us that this plan was in work, that this plan was at work, rather, and that this plan was in development. It was purposeful from the beginning. While our sin and betrayal are and have been devastating, it did not catch God the Father off guard. It did not catch God by surprise. Before the foundations of the world, God had established a plan from which, from which he would receive maximum honor and a plan from which he would receive maximum glory through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this plan was not only purposeful and definitive, but this plan was necessary. This plan was necessary. And here is where the gospel makes its distinction from other religions. Here is where the gospel answers the question, why does it have to be Jesus? Why can't it be somebody else? Why can't it be something else? Pastor theologian Tim Keller makes a great observation that that all the major, all other major faiths have founders who are teachers that show the way to salvation. But only Jesus claimed to actually be the way of salvation himself. And that's a huge difference between those two. And the answer as to why it has to be Jesus lies in the difference between those two. One says, do these things to find salvation. The other says, you can't do enough of these things to be saved. So you must embrace the one who did these things in your place to find salvation. That's a huge difference. And we've talked about the the unbelievable, holy, and spectacular nature of God. And we've talked about the unbelievably devastating nature Devastating sinfulness that earns God's judgment and creates separation that lies within us. But what happens when these two things collide? Unbelievably holy God and undeniably sinful man. What happens when these things collide? Death. Death. We see it in Exodus When the Lord shows Moses his glory and he announces that I'm going to have to hide you in the cleft of the rock, because if you see me in my full manifestation, you will die. We see it in Leviticus, when Nadab and Abihu attempt to to offer fire to God that he had not authorized, and the Lord responds with a fire that consumes them. We see it in Joshua when Achan uh, takes spoils from Israel's victory over Jericho, even after God explicitly declares that those things are devoted to him, and as a result, he and his family lose their lives. We see it in 2 Samuel, when Uzzah gets a little too close to the Ark of the Covenant and reaches out and touches it to try and keep it from, from tilting over it, and is stricken dead in that moment. All of these moments, all of these instances of judgment remind us that there is no Room for error when facing a holy and perfect God. when standing before God, no sin goes unaccounted for. In fact, this is what's being demonstrated in the Old Testament sacrificial system, when the, the blood of the animals served as a sacrificial substitute for the sins of the nation. When a lamb was slaughtered, it was a demonstration of the weight of sin. When a lamb was slaughtered, it was showing what sin deserved, which was death. Hebrews 9 tells us, verse 22, that indeed under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now think about it. Think about it. Sin requires judgment. That's what that text is saying. So think about it in light of what we know about ourselves. You and I, we are sinful. In fact, we are not just sinful. We are infinitely sinful. We disregard God in ways that we don't even realize and acknowledge. Think about even in your life in the past month. An opportunity to worship and you probably just kind of straggled in as if you were going to one of your kids, you know, one of your kids' birthday parties or one of your kids' Valentine's Day parties at the school. Kind of stumbled in, wasn't really feeling it, kind of half-heartedly singing the lyrics, kind of half-heartedly paying attention to the word of God, kind of half-heartedly engaged in prayer. Maybe you've rolled out of the bed in the last couple of days, the last couple of weeks, grabbed your phone instead of clutching your hands together and thanking God that you had another day. Maybe you've sinned in ways that are more obvious to you. But the bottom line is that not only are we simply sinful, but we are infinitely sinful. So in light of the fact that sin requires judgment, sin requires blood according to Hebrews chapter 9, what are we to do with that? What are we to do with that? You see, because sin requires blood, because sin requires judgment, it isn't even good enough to just simply say, okay, I'm gonna stop sinning today. And and then I'm gonna start doing all good. I'm gonna do good stuff now from henceforward. And then, and then because of that, say, now I'm justified. Why? Because I'm not sinning anymore. I'm good now. So we're good. Right, God? Me and you, we're okay? It's not even good enough to do that because sin requires judgment. Remember, as we read last Sunday in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that the mouth, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, listen, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being will be justified in God's sight through the law, meaning that you will not be able to get in based on the fact that you start doing good stuff. No human being will, be based, no human being will get in to the presence of God or will get the kingdom of God based on their own merit. No one living is righteous before God. All are guilty. The psalmist says in Psalm 133, verse 2, enter not into judgment with your servant. Listen, for no one living is righteous before you. Well, what if I just commit to doing better going forward? Doesn't work. For a number of reasons. I'll give you two at least. Say there's a man who commits triple, triple homicide. And as soon as he commits triple, triple homicide, he goes to the police station, he turns himself in, he says, oh oh my goodness, what have I done? He goes to the police station, he turns himself in, he cooperates with the police and, and, taking, and taking them to the bodies. He hands them the weapon that he used and, and he pleads guilty of, uh, at the trial where he cooperates fully with the investigation. And at the end of the trial, the judge pronounces the man guilty on all charges and sentences him to life. In prison, And the man rises from his seat, appalled at the verdict. Wait a second, judge. I mean, what are you doing? This, is, this, is, this isn't fair. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. You've seen my regret. You've seen my remorse. I'm a changed man. How would you expect a just judge to react? Would you expect that just judge to respond? (laughs) Man, I forgot. I remember now. You said you weren't going to do it anymore. Get out of here. Or would you expect a just judge to punish the lawbreaker? And not only would you expect it, but you would be furious if that just judge did not. You would scream injustice. Well, we are that man. Sure, we haven't murdered anybody, but again, we talked about this in, in our first two weeks. You have to weigh crimes not just based on the crime itself, but based on the offender who is offend, or the offendee who is offended. In the crime. And when you offend a perfect and holy God, the weight of the crime is exponential. So you can't just turn around after committing holy treason against God and say, Hold up, God, I'm I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna be good from here on out. So let me just go about my way. Me and you, we're good, slate's clean. Let's go, right? See you in heaven. Let's take it one step further. We are guilty in that courtroom charge of our past sin, and thus we are still, we, we are held guilty and deserve a just penalty for our guilt, our holy treason against a, uh, or, or our treason against a holy and righteous God. But here's the thing. We're not going to stop. We're the triple homicide guy that's like, all right, all right, man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Then we go and we give all, you know, help the investigation and, and all that kind of stuff. And then we leave. And like, as soon as we get out of the courtroom, we start shooting people. Boom, 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 boom. That's us. We're not going to stop sinning. We will sin again. Let, 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 let's have a show of hands. Past week, has anybody sinned in uh, or anybody not sinned, rather, in word, thought, or deed? Anybody? Show of hands? Online? We can't see you. Anybody do anything or say anything that 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 shouldn't have, that you shouldn't have, or possibly not do, or not say something that you should have? Let's 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 dial it back and let's say, okay, if if nobody can raise their hand and say, yep, that's me, I'm spotless for the week. I've really been doing a good job. Let's dial it back. Maybe that's too hard. Let's say in the last 72 hours, how you feeling about that? Pretty spotless in the last 72 hours. Feel like you and God are just a one? No. 24 hours? No. No. You absolutely have. I absolutely have. We absolutely will. And that's our dilemma. In fact, Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 says, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be justified because no one is without sin and no one will be without sin. Not only are we not without sin, but we will not stop sinning. And this is why just any religion won't do. If what is revealed in Scripture is true of God, that he is holy and he is without rival, and that he deserves absolute allegiance. And if what is revealed in scripture is true of us, that even on our best days, we are still capable of ridiculous and egregious sin, then you can't just walk away from that and say, eh, doesn't matter what religion you turn to, you'll be good. All roads lead to heaven. You can't believe that and believe what Scripture says about us and what Scripture says about God. If the one who professes Christianity declares that, then what we are in fact saying is that this book that we read is really kind of just a bunch of hogwash. And if that's how we feel, then we have other issues that are much bigger than maybe we've realized. See, you can't read this book and walk away and say, it really doesn't matter who you turn to because, you know, Buddha, Confucius, you know, do whatever you want to do. And when it's all said and done, as long as you're doing some sort of religion, you'll make it in. Because this book is saying that your good deeds will not get you there. Do you understand that? No, this plan that God orchestrates, this rescue plan, is very, very necessary. And what is the plan based on? Well, the plan is not based on what we do. The plan is based on a person. The plan is not based on a what in terms of what we do. The plan is based on a who. Read again Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. If you, if you follow me there, if not, I'll read it for you. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Not justified by works, because we've already sinned and we will sin, but through faith. In Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We cannot be justified by the law. No one will be justified by the law. So Paul says we look to Christ. You know, all the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, very early on go through great effort in in their respective narratives to make it known that Christ is not simply like everybody else. He is different. And not only is he different, but he is necessarily so different. He has to be different in order for us to have hope. He can't just be another dude. He has to be different in order for us to have hope. I love the way the Apostle John articulates this distinction in the first chapter of his gospel account. In first, first, uh, the first chapter of John, he says this in verse 4, or in verse 1 rather. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. in him was life, and the life was, and the life was the light of man. Jesus is God, not like God. Jesus is the Word, and so He is God. He is not like God. He is not close to God. Jesus is God, and that's what we need for justification. To be justified before a perfect God, we need God to stand in our place. But John doesn't stop there in verse, verse 14. Uh, verse 14, we hear this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. So Jesus is God, not like God, not close to God, but is God. He is perfect and therefore he fits the criteria as a suitable substitute for us to stand behind for justification. But he is God in the flesh, meaning that it is not Just God in the distance overlooking Adam's sins and and saying, don't worry about it, just get rid of them." But it is rather God the Father giving us a son or in his son giving us a new Adam. He's giving us a brand new Adam to do what Adam could not do, which was live the perfect life. One who is like us in every way and and there is and therefore is a true representation of us. And yet, because he is God, he is like us in every way except that he is without sin. Greg Gilbert, um, pastor and author of the book, What is the Gospel? Says this about Christ. He says, put simply, the Bible tells us that Jesus is both completely human and completely God. And this is a crucial point to understand about him, for it is only the fully human, fully divine Son of God who can save us. He continues, if Jesus were just another man, like us in every respect, like us in every respect, including our fallenness and sin, he would be no more able or he would no more be able to save us than one dead man can save another. But because he is the Son of God, Without sin and equal in every divine perfection to God, the Father, he is able to defeat death and save us from sin. In the same way, it is also critical that Jesus be truly one of us that is fully human so that he can rightly represent us before the Father. As Hebrews 4 and 15 says, Jesus is able to sympathize with our, with our weaknesses because in every respect he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, end quote. So we need God to stand in our place, but we need a representative of us to stand in that place. Thus Jesus, fully God, fully human. And so upon him is the weight of judgment poured out. Upon him, the weight of judgment, rather, is poured out. And upon him, the full wrath of God is unleashed. The wrath that you and I deserve is poured out on him. And through that, those who look to him in faith, those that look to him and say, I trust you with my life, they will receive the justification that is so elusive to us apart from him. Does that make sense? It's for this reason that John the Baptist says when when Jesus shows up on the scene. John the Baptist looks and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the plan is definitive, it's purposeful, it's established since the beginning. But the plan is necessary. You can't just look to any other plan and say, I'm just going to do it a different way because because of who we are and who God is. This is the only way. It's a requirement. But here's the final, uh, final question that I have for you this morning. Why does God do what he does? He certainly doesn't need to do it. He doesn't have to do it. He doesn't have to provide salvation for you or me. And we certainly aren't deserving of this rescue plan. So why does he do it? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. In other words, Christ went to the cross for one reason, for glory. In order, and he even goes um, as far as saying that the cross, in the cross, that he was being what? Glorified. So the cross was for the glory of God in the heavens and the glory of God amongst the heavenly hosts and the glory of God amongst the principalities and rulers that we don't even know of and have never even seen. And of course the the cross was for the glory of God of all men and women to look to and say, praise God. The cross was so that men and women would submit to Christ, to the praise of his glory. But there's one more reason. The most widely known scripture in the world gives us, gives us that reason. And yet, even though it's the most widely known scripture in the world, it's oftentimes the easiest, easiest scripture for us to forget in our struggles. I read for the struggling Christian this morning in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God died for his glory. But God died because he loved you. Christ died for you, knowing that you would come into this world shaped in iniquity. Christ died for you, knowing that you were going to sin on yesterday and knowing that you were going to sin on today and knowing that you were going to sin on tomorrow and yet he died for you because he loved you. Let's go back to that courtroom scene. Remember our triple homicide criminal who is giving up all the evidence and trying to straighten his trying to straighten this case out hoping that he might get a little leniency. The judge tells him that, brother, you killed three people. You're supposed to be in jail forever. Matter of fact, your penalty deserves death. He's pleading with the judge course, in normal circumstances, that would be the end of the story, wouldn't it? He would be handcuffed and escorted out of the room, and there would be a lock, lock, um, there would be a key to lock the door or lock the prison cell and throw it away until it was time for execution. But in this story, the judge not, doesn't simply grant leniency. He doesn't simply say, okay, Seems like you're looking for mercy. I grant you mercy. Get out of here. No, the judge says the, judge, the judgment requires or justice requires judgment. Justice requires punishment. But here's what I'm going to do. And the judge rises from his seat of authority. And he takes off his robe. And he puts on the criminal's garment. He takes on the punishment of the criminal saying to him that I am doing this because I love you. That I will absorb your punishment though I deserve to judge you. I will absorb your punishment because I love you. I borrowed this illustration from the Very first Christian hip-hop song of my life that made me cry. It was back in the 1999 group called Cross Movement. And they had this song called Off the Hook where they tell this story of a criminal and a judge. And this criminal is released because this judge takes on the punishment of the criminal. And so the criminal leaves the courtroom rejoicing that the judge would absorb the blow. And he gets home, and when he gets home, he finds a letter from the judge. He opens the letter, and in the letter it says, I bled all because I love you. My blood was shed all because I love you. They killed me instead all because I love you. I arose from the dead all because I love you. Saints of God, he has orchestrated a plan out of an abundance of love that he has for you. So why on earth would you squander that plan? Why on earth would you reject that plan? Why on earth would you put your hand up and say, no, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in what you have set aside for me in order that I might be delivered from eternal wrath. I'm not interested in your expression of love that knows no rival and knows no comparison. Why would we squander that plan? I encourage you to embrace it by responding to Christ, if you have yet to do so, in faith. Trusting him with your life in order that the justification that you so desperately need might be granted not based on your merit, but based on his respond to him in faith, respond to him through in repentance by turning to him and turning away from the lie that says I'm my own God and I deserve to do things my own way. He loved you enough to provide a plan. Now, out of love, will you respond to the plan in which he's laid out. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you.